Welcome back to Stacktrace, the podcast where we talk about Apple, news, rumors, programming, technology, and many other things. With me, John Sundell, and my good friend from across the Atlantic Ocean, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going, Rambo? Hi, John. Doing great here. How are you? I am doing great as well. You know, I keep saying that across the Atlantic Ocean, but it's not really true, because if I wanted to go to you by boat... I would have to cross not just one sea, but actually kind of three or three and a half oceans or seas, if you will. Mm. I would have to take a cruise through the Baltic Sea, then the North Sea, then the Northern Atlantic Ocean, and then the Southern Atlantic Ocean. Then I would go on a boat cruise from Gdansk to Florianpolis. I think you should stick to airplanes. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Although, you know, during these times, maybe both is the only way I can reach you if I really wanted to come visit. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what have you been up to lately? So uh, there's been an interesting new thing this week. Uh, Apple just introduced analytics for App Clips. All right. Uh, so these uh, were being collected, apparently, because I have data for way before this feature went live, but it is now visible in App Store Connect. So if you have an app clip, you can go there and you can see downloads, installs, and all of that good stuff. And I checked out the app clip data for Chibi Studio, which, uh, as our listeners will know, it has an app clip. It was one of the first apps to, to have an app clip. And uh, looking at the data for the uh, previous 30 days... I've uh, had um, 912 card views. So this is when someone sees the app clip card, the little thing that pops up before you actually launch the uh, app clip. Uh, 1,500 sessions. So that's pretty good. So that means that more people are, people are using the app clip more than once after they get it. Uh, and uh, 518 installs. And the uh, distribution between where these uh, people are coming from uh, in terms of entry point into the app clip is interesting. Um, most of the people came from a QR code, uh, some of them from an app clip code, um, smaller amount from NFC tags, and then there's all other sources, which is, I guess, the banner on the website or direct linking so yeah that's interesting yeah that's really cool and those are some really good numbers because now we're just talking about your app clip and we're just talking about the last 30 days right mm -hmm. so i think those are some really good numbers uh, for something being so new like not everybody knows that app clips is a thing that exists and it's interesting because you mentioned that a lot of installs are coming from nfc tags and things like qr codes and those are things that I would suspect are mostly, you know, meant to be ways to discover an app clip like in the wild in like a physical location. And I'm guessing that you didn't put a lot of like eye beacons around Florianpolis <laughs> for, you know, Chibi Studio, or did you? I did not. Um, well, uh, it's funny because this is actually something we thought about during the, the app's development, uh, not related to app clips, and this is totally a tangent here, but... Uh, we did think about uh, cool ways to integrate chibis into the real world, like uh, you're walking somewhere and a wild chibi appears or something. Uh, right. Pokemon Go. Capitalize on that Pokemon Go <laughs> exactly. hype, right? <laughs> yeah. 
so I don't know. Like I, I did share a QR code and an app clip codes on Twitter. And I do remember there were some publications that wrote about app clips and they shared uh, the um, QR code or maybe the app clip code as well. But the NFC tags, I don't know, like apparently close to 116 people decided to write their own NFC tags for Chippy Studio, <laughs> uh, which is not that big a deal. Like if you have a writable NFC tag, you can get a free app from the App Store that does it. It's just a URL, so it's not that big a deal. But like who would do that for someone else's app? I, I don't know. Uh, I did write at least one NFC tag, which is... In my possession, I don't see a line of people in front of my place here to scan the NFC tag, so I think it's not that <laughs> one. And I, I certainly didn't scan it 116 times myself uh, and definitely never scanned it uh, within the past 30 days. So I don't know if the data is not accurate or what's going on there, but yeah. So I think the true insight here that we can gain from these analytics is that there's a huge overlap between the segment of the people who like to use app clips and who like to use their own NFC tags. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, that's the true answer we're getting here. Yeah, NFC tag aficionados out there. Lots of them. <laughs> right. You know what? I'm thinking that could this perhaps be related to sharing? Because there are some new features in iOS related to sharing with the NFC like capabilities and with this like near field uh what it is is called the U1 chip right like could it be something like that where people are sharing it with their close friends who have the latest iPhones and that is resulting in the analytics picking it up as an NFC tag uh, I don't think so there isn't there is no such interaction that I know of uh, the only way for you to directly share an app clip with someone is to send a link through iMessage and then it shows up as like a special little balloon that you can click and, and launch the app clip but that has nothing to do with NFC as far as I know the only thing that would be considered NFC is someone actually scanning an NFC tag right so yeah then our insight was correct then that there's a bunch of NFC enthusiasts out there using Chibi Studio <laughs> <laughs> So with all of this analytics then uh, at your disposal, uh, what do you think? Like, do you feel like it was worth it building this app clip? Do you feel like the app clip is off to a good start? Or, you know, what does this kind of tell you from a business perspective, if you will? So this is very interesting. I did notice an increase in app installs in general uh, as of after releasing the app clip, basically. And I wasn't sure if it was because of the app clip or related to the app clip and now that i have this information i can i can have an idea at least directly how many people came from the app clip and in the same period we're talking about uh, app store connect will also show in the sources for your own app how many people installed it through the app clip and the answer for the the past 30 days for chibi studio is 50 and that doesn't ex completely explain the increased installs I've been seeing uh, but um, actually our colleague Mayo um, raised an important point that maybe people are not installing it through the app clip but they're looking for apps that have app clips and they see the app in coverage about app clips and that drove more installs but not directly through the app clip. 
uh, and to more directly answer the question, like for me, it was definitely worth it, both at a like a technological level, so that I, I could learn how to use App Clips and and have experience in the field, which has already paid off in terms of how many workshops and webinars I was able to do on App Clips, which would probably not have happened if I weren't doing this. And I think it's also good for the app in the end because it did bring some coverage. And even though the app clip itself is not what's driving more installs, it's the fact that the app has a new thing that's this kind of weird technology that people are not used to, I guess, drove more interest for the app itself. Um, And app clips themselves, I, I think the jury's still out because like we mentioned it's there there's a bad timing component to to them because the like the textbook use case is let's go to a, a store like a coffee place or something and use their app clip to pay or to look at their menu or something like that and people are just not doing that right now so yeah we'll have to to wait and see once again and i also believe that there's going to be an AR angle to app clips. I think app clips are going to be used as an entry point to AR experiences in whatever Apple releases next. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely a potential for app clips to become a lot more popular than they have been. And like you say, they are definitely geared more towards like you're in a physical location, you're scanning a tag or something, or you have to accomplish a task using an app that you don't want to save that app afterwards, right? Like the the example that is always given is the parking meter example, right? Yeah. That you just want to pay for parking somewhere with an app. And then, you know, once you're done parking, you don't want that app anymore. So in that case, like apps like Chibi Studio which is essentially using app clips as like a demo, right? Or a showcase for the app. That is a really interesting use case too, but that hasn't been, you know, as commonly seen yet. But I I still think that app clips is a really cool thing. And I really hope that it will, like, it will probably not take off in the sense that, you know, everyone will always be using app clips, but it's a great addition to the system, I feel like. And you know, being able to provide demos like you are and like some game developers have started doing and so on. I think that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. And I still stand by my point that uh, even from a business uh, perspective, it, it can make sense. Uh, the argument people use the most is I think something we talked about in, in when we first discussed App Clips is that, oh, but then people are not going to install your app. Uh, but that's assuming that getting people to install an app is easy, and it's not. Right. Like that's That hasn't been true for a long time. Getting people to install your app, even if it's a free app, is not easy. So if you get, can remove that initial barrier of installing the app, you can have a person's business uh, where you wouldn't before, maybe, depending on your business, of course. So... Yeah, I think we're we're still going to have to wait a little bit longer to see what happens. And again, Apple can uh, this June say that, oh, and now App Clips can be up to 20 megabytes. And that's going to solve the problem for many people because I know that a lot of people gave up on App Clips because of the 10 megabyte limit. And while I like that it 
limited in a way, and of course it has to have a limit because it has to be almost like an instant gratification type thing. I think maybe 10 megabytes is too little in today's world with 4G and now 5G and fast internet connections. I think if they increase it to 20 megabytes, it will be doubling the amount of space you can have, and that will solve the problem for so many people because I think the last, like, several hours of development in the Chibi Studio app clip was shaving off one megabyte because it was at, like... 11 instead of 10 so yeah if if i could have that extra megabytes it would have been much easier yeah because we have to remember that apps are not just code and even if they are just code like sometimes your code is not super neatly separated where you can just create a new app clip target in xcode and then drag in like a few libraries that you've cleanly separated out and then build an app clip in a few days, yeah. right? Like sometimes you will need to bring in, you know, a large part of your code base, which might be coupled in different ways in order to be able to perform the functionality that you want in the app clip. Even if it's just something like rendering one view controller, which should be simple in theory, but, you know, you might have your UI library, which might then depend on your color definitions, which might, you know, require some asset catalogs, which are full of images and icons and, and all sorts of things. And, you know, that can be sometimes really hard to... Uh, remove or to like make that smaller or fully decoupled and i think that's probably the the reason why we haven't seen super widespread adoption of app clips yet is because it is usually a fair amount of work to create one you know how it is companies are, are always hesitant to adopt like these kinds of technologies in the beginning before they've seen if it's going to be worthwhile for them to do so if it requires like a significant engineering investment yeah, and I would say for any significantly large code base, this is a quite a substantial engineering investment because you are going to, to have to either modularize your code better or you're going to have to rewrite a bunch of stuff just for the app clip, and that's never easy. Right, and you kind of did some of that as well. Like, Well, first of all, you did that thinning of the resources, right? Yep. But you also restructured your project in a few different ways. And, you know, I think you mentioned that it also improved the main app as well. So that can also be a nice side effect. But yeah, you have to do that work. Absolutely. So uh, what have you been up to? So I've been doing a ton of Mac development mm. lately, actually. So I mentioned on the previous episode that I was working on this new project that uses uh, C++ Core and a Mac app written using that. And I was doing a lot of interoperability between Swift and C++ using C. And that's been working out really, really well. I've been working a lot on that project during the last week, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's really, really cool now to like do really serious Mac development for the first time in a long time, where... You know, I built a lot of Mac apps during the last couple of years, but they've been mostly like tools that I've written for myself or prototypes and, and things like that. Like I built my own custom invoicing system so that every invoice that my clients get is all actually a rendered Swift UI view. <laughs> so the, the PDF itself, the invoice is actually a Swift UI view that's rendered as a PDF. And then I've got my analytics tool that I talked about, um, you know, a few episodes ago that where I can see my page views and unique visitors and things like that. And I've got a few other like tools like that that I built for myself, mostly using Swift UI. And those have all been great experiences working on those. And I'm using those like almost every day. So in that sense, they are production software because I'm using them to like, you know, produce all of mm -hmm. my work and, and to do my daily work. But they're, of course, not deployed like so that you know, a lot of other people are using it. And this project will be that eventually when it's going to be released. 
And that's really cool. Like it's it's fun to build an app in that context with this kind of complexity also of having that C++ core that I have to interact with and building a UI on top of that. So I've been really enjoying that. And one thing that has been really like striking me as I've been doing this work is that, you know, people have been debating whether Swift UI on the Mac is good. Like they say that, you know, some people say that on iOS it's good, but on Mac, you know, it's questionable whether it's good. But you know what, Rambo? I think that Swift UI on the Mac is even better than on iOS. And now I'm talking about specifically on Big Sur. I should put that caveat on that statement. <laughs> so I'm not talking about Catalina or anything like that. I'm talking about using Swift UI in a Mac app on Big Sur is, in my experience and in my opinion, amazing. Nice. Yeah, I, I must say I've been having a very similar experience because I'm currently writing this user-facing feature in Airbud. It's like it's going to be the first main app feature that uses Swift UI. Um, I do have the feedback thing, but that's not like a main feature of the app. It's just like a nice convenience. Uh, and uh, I am, for the time being, requiring Big Sur for that particular feature. So um, the app still runs even uh, in Mojave, but that feature specifically will require Big Sur. And I, of course, it's very subjective, but, but I feel like I've been having way less weird glitches than I would have when working on iOS. Uh, like my um, photo stickers thing I was working on, and which I'm still going to release, it's just not ready yet. It's also Swift UI, and I decided to use uh, Swift UI for everything. So not like I had been doing before, where UI Kit is still the navigation, but the views are Swift UI. No, it's all Swift UI, including navigation view and things like that. And even things like with a standard configuration, I would get some weird glitches sometimes that I would have to work around. And I haven't seen that with at least the particular subset of Swift UI that I'm using for this little feature I'm working on. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And even, you know, in my experience here working on this project, which, you know, at this point it has like, you know, 50 plus views, something like that. Like, it's not a simple app. Like, it has a lot of complexity to it. And I'm also using all of the standard Swift UI stuff. The only thing I'm not using is I'm not using a Swift UI app struct. Instead, I'm using, because it's a documents-based app, so I'm using an NS document because I needed to do that instead of using the Swift UI native document version because I needed access to some APIs that that didn't support yet. And, you know, that's always fine for me when I'm using Swift UI. I'm fine falling back to AppKit and UIKit whenever I need to. I think that's a strength of the framework. And, you know, I've mentioned that many times, but I, I, I really think it's worth reiterating because it's always an option, right? Like if you uh, encounter some weird behavior or something you just can't do with Swift UI, just fall back to the previous frameworks. It will be fine. Uh, but I've found myself doing way less of that on macOS, where on iOS, I will typically have quite a few views that I bring in from UIKit into Swift UI using UIView representable, but I don't have a single view like that in this app. Like it's all just native Swift UI views. Although I'm doing one really fun thing where I am taking a Swift UI view, which I'm putting in an NS hosting view, which I am then putting in an NS toolbar item. <laughs> so I have like multiple layers there of, you know, Swift UI and AppKit interacting and it all works. 
And that's like, it's been so great to have this experience because like you also said, like sometimes there are a few glitches here and there uh, on iOS when using SwiftUI, but on the Mac, it's been really rock solid so far. And another thing that I really like about it is that, you know, there's always this talk about Mac apps and Mac-like Mac apps and Mac apps that feel native and, you know, comparing them to both, you know, apps that are written using web technologies or Catalyst apps and so on. And if you build a Mac app using SwiftUI, you basically get all of that Maciness for free. Like the things like the new sidebars in Big Sur, all you have to do is to implement the navigation view and have two views in there and you get a sidebar for free. You get that content view, toolbar items, like all of the standard things that you expect from a Mac app, they're just there when you implement it using SwiftUI. And I know that's also true, at least to some extent, when it comes to AppKit 2, but I find it so much more intuitive to build those things in SwiftUI. And I feel like, you know, just by declaring those views, I get that behavior for free, which I think is just, you know, it's really cool and it really speeds up the development process. Well, of course you can write a, an amazing Mac app in AppKit, <laughs> but it's going to be a, a lot more verbose. Uh, yeah. And it's basically the same thing as with UIKit or SwiftUI. With UIKit, there's a lot more boilerplate, and with AppKit, it's the same, being that they are conceptually similar, although AppKit is older and therefore uh, has usually more complexity in certain aspects. But yeah, in general, with the standard controls you get from SwiftUI, you get what you expect. Like It, it just looks like a Mac app, and uh, customization is not very hard like I, I have customized a few things here and there um, the main thing I've been missing uh, and this is uh, true of SwiftUI in general is a replacement for collection views and you can get a lot done with uh, grids and, and lazy grids but it's just not the same uh, a, like a multi-dimensional collection view where you can navigate using the keyboard to select things that's still something i i'm missing from SwiftUI. but i i needed something like that for this feature i'm working on so i just implemented keyboard navigation myself <laughs> which is not recommended <laughs> but it's working so I, i'm probably going to ship it like that yeah, it all depends on like what is the actual UI, right? If you have like a pretty clear-cut grid, then implementing keyboard navigation is not that hard, right? And you could have some state variable that keeps track of the currently selected item. You could observe the keyboard uh, entries and then you could modify the state, which I guess is how you implemented yep. it. Yeah, well, observing the keyboard is is a little bit tricky because depending on how you do it, if you do it wrong, you, you end up swallowing all key presses within the app and that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing though. With, with Mac development in general, and you know, I mentioned earlier that I think that SwiftUI is a little bit more intuitive than AppKit in some regards at least. Like, it makes the behaviors a little bit more clear, at least to me. But there's a lot about Mac development that is things you just have to know, yeah. right? Like, especially when it comes to things like the responder chain, and, and we, we talked about that in detail on a previous episode, like how events are dispatched and things like that. And once you learn about those things, it's all really elegant, like how a menu command gets validated through the responder chain and, you know, whether or not it's enabled or not, depending on if there's a object in the responder chain that can respond to it. Like, 
all of those things are really cool and and the way it all comes together is is incredibly powerful and once you figure all of those things out then you can build things with very little code even with appkit or with swift ui that just works as you would expect on the mac which is you know my goal always but getting there and realizing all of those things can sometimes be a little bit of a bumpy road yeah definitely Cool. So, uh, yeah, we're continuing to explore SwiftUI in many different contexts and we'll continue to share our learnings. But now let's jump over into our In the News segment. But before we do, let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's sponsor. This week's episode of Stacktrace is brought to you by Pillow, the all-in-one sleep tracking solution that can help you get a better night's sleep. Download it from the App Store using the link that's in the show notes to try it for free and to help support Stacktrace. Now, people very often ask me and Rambo if we ever sleep, given that we work on so many projects, and trust us, we really do sleep. In fact, I love sleeping, and I truly believe that getting a good night's sleep makes a huge difference in terms of my productivity and overall well-being. And Pillow is an all-in-one sleep tracking solution that can help you become more aware of your sleep patterns and discover what might be affecting your sleep quality. If you have an Apple Watch, then tracking your sleep is as easy as wearing your Apple Watch during sleep. Pillow will track and analyze your sleep completely automatically. One of Pillow's most beloved features is that you can get a detailed heart rate diagram after every sleep session. You can even compare your sleep quality with your weight, steps you walk during the day, caffeine consumption, and many other health metrics to help you discover what might be affecting your sleep. Pillow can also optionally record sounds you make during your sleep as well, uh, from sleep talking to sleep apnea and snoring or unexpected noises that might be also affecting your sleep, and you might be surprised by the results. And really importantly is that Pillow does all of this with a huge focus on user privacy. All your sleep and audio data is encrypted and stored locally on your device and your iCloud storage account using end-to-end encryption. Pillow doesn't have user accounts at all, so you can use it completely anonymously and it doesn't collect or send your personal data anywhere else. Pillow also has many other features as well, like a power nap mode for quick naps during the day, it lets you set alarms, and more. You can try it for free today, and if you use our referral link that's in the show notes, then you both get to try Pillow for free, and you also directly help support mine and Rambo's work with Stacktrace as well. Thanks a lot to Pillow for sponsoring this week's episode of Stacktrace. All right, Rambo, so it's time for our news segment, and I think we have some follow-up from last week's episode, is that right? Yeah, that's true. So we talked about these uh, App Store scams that have been going on, and I learned through a developer, and uh, after doing some research, I realized that Apple seems to be doing something about that. It's not clear if they have increased it more recently because of those reports or if is it's been going on for a little bit longer because we do see reports of these at least since um, late 2020. Uh, so a developer got a rejection email from, from Apple and it was basically saying... The prices you've selected for your app or in-app purchase uh, do not reflect the value of the features and content offered to the user. 
Charging irrationally high prices for content or services with limited value is a ripoff to customers and is not appropriate for the App Store. <laughs> so when I first saw that letter, I thought there's no way this could be true. Like Apple would not outright say like this is a ripoff <laughs> in a rejection email. <laughs> right, it's pretty harsh language. Yeah, exactly, but after seeing all, all the evidence, uh, I can confirm that this email is true and it's not the only one. Apple has been doing this more frequently uh, lately. So yeah, I guess that's good, right? We have to say it again. It turns out that running to the press works. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, it wasn't running to the press because you were treated poorly. It was running to the press to report users being treated poorly by developers. Yeah, true. Uh, and... This particular incident I, I reported on last week, actually, it, it kind of highlights how tricky Apple's job is with moderating the App Store, because in this case, it was obviously a mistake. Like, I, I didn't get like a developer reach out, hey, I tried to do a scam and Apple wouldn't let me. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> it, it was like a legitimate developer, but... For some reason, Apple didn't understand why they had to charge a certain amount for their subscription. And after a little bit of back and forth with App Review, they were able to explain the situation and, and got approved. But yeah, unfortunately, while this is good in general for users, there are going to be false positives. And I guess the best way to protect ourselves as legitimate developers is to use the review notes field if you think your in-app purchases are slightly more expensive than usual maybe put a little note in the review notes explaining why that's the case um, i think in the case of the app i reported on the developer uses third-party apis which are paid for so they had to charge a little bit extra yeah so use those uh, review notes field in app store connect yeah that's a very good tip and we mentioned it also on the previous episode but it definitely is a thing where it can swing both ways right like there can be uh, too much control from apple where it will be kind of annoying for developers or, or developers with really good intentions who are not doing any scamming things will still get caught and you know rejected because of you know tighter control and, you know, the situation can also be what it was now where scams are allowed in the App Store, like either deliberately or probably by mistake, right? So, yeah, it's it's going to be a tricky situation for Apple to solve in a completely kind of clean way. And there will always be that judgment involved of saying, like, is this worth this money? Which, you know, is, is a purely subjective thing at the end of the day. Although, of course, we can argue about it should be within the realm of reason, right? So a calendar app or, you know, a weather app or something should probably not cost like, you know, a thousand euros per week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, and and that's why I, I say that Apple should be doing these post-reviews, not just the pre-reviews before releasing an app and also taking into consideration a given developer or, or company's reputation. Like if someone who's just opened a new developer account is trying to charge uh, an amount that's slightly over what you would expect for something yeah maybe be a little bit more strict with them because you don't have a like a history um but if a developer has like a good track record maybe don't be so like 
willing to call it a ripoff <laughs> outright. So right. I think the there's some nuance to to be had uh, in in that case. And I know this kind of like uh, there's a lot of discussion that happens around this. Oh, but then like there's going to be different levels of developer. But I I don't think of it like that. I think of it like when you have a reputation, when you have credits, you have credits. And if you don't, you don't. So uh, I, don't, I don't think it's bad for Apple to treat developers differently and not in, in the terms of like what rules they must follow, but how careful they are when applying them and uh, how much to weigh against them when reviewing an app. Yeah, because as a new developer or as a new app, you're always going to have to win the trust, right? Like yep. you don't get trust from everybody automatically. You have to earn that trust. And I think you have to earn it from customers and you probably have to earn it from Apple too. So I think that makes sense. Like if you have a track record of doing good things and you know being a good citizen on the App Store, then you should, maybe rewarded is the wrong word, but you should at least like, not be treated as, you know, a scammer, right? If you've been doing, you know, good business for many years. Um, and another thing here that I think Apple perhaps should look at closer, and we, we also touched on this on a previous episode, but it's their rule around minimum functionality, where, you know, there's this rule in the App Store that says that your app has to provide a minimum amount of functionality. Like, you cannot just put an app on the App Store that has the label Hello World. Like, it has to actually do something, right? It has to do something useful, and I think this also ties into this issue where a lot of these scams, they were basically not really doing anything, yeah. right? So if Apple focused a lot of their kind of reviewing attention, not just on like, is this worth the money, but on does this app actually do what's advertised? I think that will also go a long way to combating this problem. Yeah, and I think I mentioned this before, and uh, I think uh, also John Gruber in his commentary about this story mentioned that Apple needs to focus on taking down successful scams because yeah. if a scam is unsuccessful, then it's not like whatever. Like it's just an app that's not generating any money and it's not being downloaded. So who cares? But they do need to keep an eye out for successful scams. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, now moving on to a little bit more fun topic or, you know, a speculative topic, <laughs> maybe. Uh, let's talk about what Apple might do during their March event, which we're presuming will happen, or what do you think, Rambo? That's, uh, I don't know, uh, I I do think it's possible that there will be a March event. I don't have any insider information on, on whether there will be one, and I don't particularly trust the sources that are, are being cited as there being a, a March 16th event, more specifically, this year. So we'll see. I think it's definitely possible from looking at the schedule that Apple usually does for events and also looking at what might be announced. Now you're sounding almost like those articles that are really hedging their bets, <laughs> which is like, Apple may do a March event, but they may also not do it. They are considering it, but they haven't decided yet. <laughs> let, let me put it in another way. I think... It's almost certain that there will be new products announced by Apple in March. I'm just not sure if there's going to be an event. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, especially during these times, right? Like, maybe they don't want to always do one of these, like, uh, pre-recorded video events uh, for every release. And and also, they, they haven't done that in the past either. Like, sometimes they will release 
quite major products with quote-unquote just a press release, right? Or a product video that is just put on apple.com and not actually like a live stream or something like that. But, you know, of course, I'm a huge fan of the Apple events. I love watching them and it's like such a nice thing to follow and discuss. So I am hoping that there will be some kind of event in March at least. Yeah, definitely. I I, I definitely hope there is an event because I like the events, but if there's no event and there's just like a, a week of shipping like we've seen before or like uh, they release like a press release like uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday or something like that, that, that will be fine. Yeah, I do like the weeks of shipping. <laughs> those are those are really good weeks. Yeah. So what do we think that Apple might ship then? Like what do you feel like is kind of on the horizon for being released in March? AirTags. <laughs> it's like the never-ending story at this point, right? Yeah, but... Let, let's uh, keep that out of the way. So yeah, AirTags, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> so uh, with AirTags, uh, I mean, <laughs> with the uh, March event or no event, I think it's possible we'll see new iPads uh, and there have been reports about new iPads, a new iPad Pro and maybe also a new iPad mini. I think it's about time the iPad mini adopts the special no home button design maybe with the sensor on the on off button like the latest ipad air what do you think i'm not sure if i think that the ipad mini is quote-unquote important enough to warrant a redesign already Uh, and when i say important i mean like in terms of how it's placed in the lineup so the ipad air is kind of the the mainstream quote-unquote default ipad right like it's not the baseline iPad, but it's like the middle one. So it's the one that has like some features from the pros, some features that are missing and so on, some features that are different, like it has Touch ID in that in the power button and so on, which is really cool. Uh, but I feel like the iPad mini kind of belongs further down the product line in terms of like the um, the price and, and how it's positioned. So I feel like it's more like the baseline iPad and I'm not really expecting that to be redesigned. So I feel like the iPad mini will probably stay in the current form factor until the baseline iPad also is eventually redesigned. I mean, at some point they will be either canceled or redesigned, but I would love to see it like an iPad mini with that new iPad Pro or Air like design language. It could be incredibly like thin and light and small and having such a small device with no huge bezels, I think would be really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting. And this depends, I guess, on where the iPad mini is positioned in the lineup. Uh, and we can look at the price and things like that. But is it the iPad mini because it's small, because of the price, or both? If it's because it's small, then maybe it would make sense for it to go to the new form factor, uh, assuming they can do it at the same price it is today. But it's if, but if it's uh, supposed to be like a, quote, cheap iPad, then it doesn't make sense for it to adopt the new design, uh, unless it has become a lot less expensive to manufacture. Uh, and I, I don't know. I think maybe the iPad mini is supposed to be just a small iPad, and it, it doesn't have to be the cheapest iPad, and maybe it's going to get the new design. And if you want a cheap iPad, then you can get the other one. It's almost like they should rename the the iPads. So maybe the iPad uh, mini should become the iPad Air mini. And the other iPad should be iPad SE. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, maybe. 
Uh, one other reason, like a third reason why the iPad mini still exists could also be for legacy reasons that, you know, it's been a product that's been around for a while now and presumably there are some people buying it and who like it. So Apple might just be kind of just keeping updating it and keeping it along for the ride, even though they're not like investing anything significantly in it. It's kind of like that baseline iPad, you know, every time they announce a new version of it, they're like, this is the new iPad. But really what it is, is like an update to the chip inside, which is great that they're doing that. I love that they're keeping their products up to date with the latest chip so that, you know, someone who goes and buys one of those things doesn't get like a chip that's like five years old or something. So it's really great that they keep them up to date, but it's also not like changing the design radically every year. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that There might be a lot of places where they use the original iPad and they need it to be in that particular form factor for whatever reason. Right, exactly. So besides some iPad updates, uh, what do you think we might see otherwise? There's also a, a report about a third generation iPhone SE with not much in terms of details. Um, so yeah, the latest iPhone SE was released back in uh, 2020, I think in April, and uh, it adopted the iPhone 8 design language. So who knows, maybe this could be an iPhone SE with the same form factor, but with uh, an A14 inside and they just keep the chip updated. Yeah, it could be. It could be the same situation there, right? That they update the chip and, and keep that going. But I also think that it's probably too early to see an update to the iPhone SE. That one feels like it's on like a three or four year release cycle rather than a yearly release cycle. Yeah, I I, I do feel like if they're going to keep the SE lineup uh, updated, that goes both for iPhone and Apple Watch. I think it's going to be probably more like a once every other year kind of thing. Exactly. There's also reports about... New AirPods, which, uh, as you probably expect, I'm very interested in. And I think the most interesting here is uh, these rumors, which are not new, that a new generation of AirPods, not the AirPods Pro, the regular AirPods, would adopt the AirPods Pro design language, which means they would uh, become in-ear instead of... Well, I guess the current ones are already in-ear in a sense but more in-ear they would be more <laughs> further in your ear <laughs> more invasive airpods <laughs> right yeah that's an interesting one because then you would start to ask yourself like what would separate the normal airpods from the pro right and then presumably the pro would need to gain some other feature that you know it's kind of hard to think about to be honest like what could they do to the AirPods Pro to make them even more pro? Like, I love my AirPods Pro. I don't really have any complaints about them. Maybe, like, even longer battery life, even though, like, I mean, I don't really travel anything at the moment, and I typically don't use my AirPods Pro when I'm in front of the computer, so I charge mine, like, once every week or something like that, and it's, like, super great. So, yeah, I, I don't really know what they could do to uh, make it even more pro, although I'm really curious to find out. Well, I think there's a simple distinction there. The AirPods Pro have uh, noise cancellation and transparency, and the regular AirPods do not. But if they're in your ear like that, if they adopt that form factor, not having any form of transparency mode would be pretty bad, wouldn't it? Like, it would block too much sound and pr 
possibly also be kind of like a, a risk if you're out walking and things like that if you don't hear things around you well the the airpods pro they have this pressure equalization system where your ears won't feel like they're clogged basically when you're using them and i guess they could change that system to allow more sound through because of course the airpods pro are designed to keep the sound out naturally and then they use active noise cancellation to improve that even further and transparency to allow sound in, but there's no way the regular AirPods are going to get these features, I don't think. Like, uh, it will be probably to avoid having issues with blocking out the exterior sound, they would have some sort of physical change made so that they don't block uh, the outside sound from coming in. Right, physical transparency mode. <laughs> yeah, or maybe <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll have transparency mode on all the time. That's the only change. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like it's it's a software thing where it's just like a patch that just enables it all the time. Like it's the exact same hardware, <laughs> only that it's you you can't control the transparency mode. That would be so great, wouldn't it? It would be just like a car where all the car comes with all the features, it's just some buttons are disabled. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and with the AirPods Pro, there have been rumors, and these are not new, that uh, they would lose the stem, but according to Bloomberg, that's not a given, and I hope they do not, because I've seen all of these other, like, um, (laughs) kidney-shaped earphones from other manufacturers, and I don't like the way they look. Like, you look at someone wearing them, and it just looks like they they have a plug in their ear. Uh, I don't know. The, we we thought the AirPods were weird and quirky when we first saw them, but now that we're used to them, I think they're, they look way better than those kidney-shaped phones from other brands. Yeah, also the stem has the controls on it, yeah. right? And it makes it easier to take out of the ear and stuff like that. So it does have a lot of practical purpose also. It's not just a battery container, but, you know, who knows? It might be one of those things that we're just used to it. And then once we see the AirPods without the stem, we're like, oh, the old ones look really old now. <laughs> you know, you never know. That's how design works. It, You never know that you don't like something until you've seen the new thing. Yeah, exactly. And to, to finish it off, new Apple TV. Uh, so there's been rumors about where's the new Apple TV for a long time. And I've, I've mentioned in, in this show that I think the current Apple TV needs at least a processor upgrade. And, uh, of course, with any rumor of a new Apple event, there's the possibility that Apple will announce a new Apple TV and we can speculate about what this Apple TV would be. Uh, I would like it to have a faster processor, basically. That would make me quite happy. If it supported spatial audio, it would make me even more happy. What do you think, John? Yeah, I definitely agree with those things. And I would even go further to say that I would like it to be almost like an M1, but in a different enclosure. Mm. So with the M1, Apple has already shown that they can run that like at really high capacity without any active cooling. And in a small enclosure, like the Mac Mini is a really small enclosure. It's just a little bit bigger than the Apple TV. Well, I guess like twice as big or something like that. But still, like it's it's in the same kind of ballpark, if you will. So... I would love to see that for mostly because of Apple Arcade, because my favorite way of playing games in general, and I play a lot of games, is to play it in front of my TV on like my Xbox and things like that and PlayStation. 
And I would love to play more Apple Arcade games because I have been enjoying more and more games recently as well. Maybe we need to bring back Stacktrace Arcade at some point. Uh, But I have been enjoying Apple Arcade and there's some really good titles coming out. But I don't want to sit in my office and play games on my Mac. And I can play it on my iPad, but I would really prefer to play it on the TV. And of course, I can connect my iPad to my TV, but then that's, that's the awkward thing where it renders still on the iPad <laughs> and it, it, ha- it has a weird kind of letterboxing to it. So I would just love to be able to have an Apple TV that I can connect, you know, a game controller to, plug it into the TV and play Apple Arcade on it with like great performance. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and in my case, uh, I don't play that many games, but even through regular usage of the Apple TV, you do notice that it, it it's not that capable like even with i mentioned before with springboard or pineboard i guess it's what what it's called it, it can have a little bit of lag sometimes because it just can't keep up with the os so i would like a faster apple tv for sure and uh, it w- what's interesting about this is uh and i am noticing it more and more now that uh, it's been a long time since the apple tv was last updated there seems to be like a cycle with Apple products uh, that are not updated every year, basically, where at the end of their life, before a new update comes out, everyone is like, oh, Apple is going to kill this. Why does this exist? Apple should not have a, an Apple TV. This is ridiculous. Uh, the Apple TV is doomed. Uh, what do you think about that, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how it always happens like right before the product is updated, right? Yeah. Like not always, of course, but it kind of feels like it becomes even more intense. And perhaps that's a signal that Apple is waiting a little bit too long to update some of these products. And I kind of get it also, like it it's almost seems like it's abandoned because... Of course, Apple is not going to tell you that they're working on a new Apple TV. They're not going to say, you know just be calm. There's going to be a new Apple TV in 2021. Like, they're not going to do that. The only time they pretty much ever did that in recent memory is when they did that Mac roundtable, where they basically said, we're going to make a Mac Pro. But that's it, right? So I understand why this happens. And I sometimes feel this way too. I'm like, will there ever be a new Apple TV? Because like I mentioned, I I would really want one. I would really like to buy one. But at the same time, like, sometimes these things take longer to develop and sometimes it might just be a timing issue where if they are going the route that I just speculated like and putting an M1 style of chip in the new Apple TV then you couldn't really do that before releasing the M1 Max now could you right yeah so then the timeline kind of works out but since we don't get any transparency into that like we don't know what Apple's roadmap looks like it's easy to start declaring products dead or, or abandoned just because you haven't seen any activity on them And I'm always hesitant to do that. Like, you know, I basically consider products to be alive or worked on until I see or hear otherwise. But I also get that, you know, you can get a little bit impatient sometimes. And sometimes it really does feel like something is abandoned. It's still a product in our lineup. (laughs) That's a classic one, right? (laughs) But, you know, that might be the case. You might be looking at a product page and you see an Apple TV, which is, I don't know, at this point, like three or four years old or something, right? Yeah. But then at the same time, like there are engineers at Apple right now, like working super hard on the new Apple TV. So, you know, there's that disconnect between what happens at Apple and what we see from the outside. Yeah. And I do believe that they are working on a new Apple TV. And I also believe firmly that the Apple TV as a device has to exist, if for nothing else, so that I can watch my TV with 
AirPods or AirPods Max or whatever Apple headphones because that's like the number one feature I use on my Apple TV and I really love it. Like I technically I can connect my AirPods to directly to my TV, but then you have to hold the button and it takes forever to connect and it doesn't work really well. Also, AirPlay uh, on third-party devices, it doesn't really has have like the nice integration that Apple does. So even if it's it's just to play nice with the ecosystem, I think the Apple TV has to be a thing. Yeah, it's kind of like the same position as HomePod is in, right? Yeah. Where it's not maybe necessary if you needed to remove some products from the lineup, then you would probably remove things like the HomePod and the Apple TV. But, you know, if there is room for products like this, which I hope there will continue to be, then they're great, like great additions. And of course, you can still watch Apple TV Plus and, and all those sorts of things on your TV. Like, I've been watching a lot more of these streaming services on my Xbox recently because I mostly watch shows that I watch by myself that I don't watch with my girlfriend. I watch them late at night when she's already asleep and I don't want to you know, wake her up with loud noises. <laughs> so then I wear my headphones, like my gaming headphones, which have really good Dolby Atmos support. And that sounds great. Like I love watching TV shows uh, with them. And, and on the Xbox, I have all of the streaming services like Apple TV Plus is there. I have, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the other ones. So that works great. But like you say, like the, the, the seamlessness of being able to connect like your AirPods to the Apple TV and things like that, that is a really good experience in general. So I, I really do hope that they continue with the Apple TV. I think it's it's an important product. And like I mentioned earlier, like if they really want to continue with Apple Arcade and that again, I think it's great. Like Apple Arcade is a good platform. They should continue with it. Uh, I just wish that there was a dedicated device for it. And once there will be, then the developers working on Apple Arcade can also target that as a game console type of thing where they know the specs up front. They can fine tune for that specs. And if it is something like an M1 or an Apple Silicon device, then they could really optimize their games for that. And it could almost become like, you know, maybe not as powerful as the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5, but like a, you know, mid-range console, which would be great. Yeah, definitely. So that's the possible Apple March event for this year. We'll see what happens. And of course, if they announce a March event, we're going to have our first poker of 2021. All right. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm already shuffling the cards <laughs> and getting ready to play poker. Nice. <laughs> All right, Rambo. So with that speculation segment behind us, what do you say? Should we round off this episode with some Ask Stack Trace? Let's go. And before we answer this week's question, I once again want to uh, ask our listeners to send us more questions because we know you have questions. Don't be shy. Uh, reach out. Like It doesn't have to be a question per se. It can just be a suggestion for a topic or anything else you want us to talk about on the show. We just love to hear from you and we love for you to be able to influence what we talk about on the show as well. So you can either tweet at us with the hashtag AskStackTrace. That's super easy. Just tweet with that hashtag and we'll see it and we'll pick it up for a future episode. Or you can send us an email at stacktrace at 9to5mac.com. That works as well with any question or topic suggestion that you have. And we'll pick it up for a future Ask AskStackTrace segment. So if you have any idea, please do send us your feedback. Uh, someone who has done that is Javier, who asks if we have any good reference texts or books to recommend on software testing. 
So Rambo, do you have any books about unit testing or other kinds of software testing to recommend to Javier? I do not. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, that's because, well, first of all, I'm not that much into testing, not as you are. Uh, we've established that, that before, that you're the tester among us. And <laughs> right. That sounds like I'm testing your code. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, if you want to, I have a bunch of code here that needs testing. Uh, I will send you a freelancing proposal, Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, like I, I do buy programming books, but it's generally not to read them from start to finish. Uh, it's usually more as like a reference or as like a source of not inspiration, but, but general directions for things. So it's very rare that I'm, that I'm going to like buy a programming book and then start from page zero and go all the way up to page whatever. Um, yeah, so sorry I don't have any better response for that, but what's your take, John? So I'm going to do two things. The first thing is I'm going to do a shameless plug here. <laughs> and that's to uh, say that I have quite a lot of testing coverage and uh, resources on my website. Uh, you can go to swiftbysundell.com slash discover slash unit testing. And there you can find uh, lots of articles and things like that about unit testing and uh, different kinds of testing as well and different techniques and, and these sorts of things. Um, I also don't typically read a lot of programming books. Uh, and that's because it's not really my preferred way of learning. Like... I don't like to learn by just sitting down and reading like a, you know, 300 page book or something like that and, and then feeling like I, you know, learned that subject. I like to learn by doing. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to buy software books. It's not wrong to learn that way. Uh, everybody learns differently and that's great. So if you learn by reading books, then awesome, buy books. Uh, I personally like to experiment with things and learn that way. Uh, reading articles and things is also a great way for me to learn because I can read it a little bit shorter time and then I can start applying and experimenting with those techniques. And again, I know that some people don't like to learn that way and they prefer the longer book format or to use it as reference like you mentioned, Rambo. So, you know, it's, it's all about preference here. Uh, one thing, though, I want to say about unit testing in particular, because I get quite a lot of questions about this, like, how do I get started with unit testing? Um, you know, how do I actually test my code and so on? And sometimes I do get the impression, I'm not saying that this is what Javier here is feeling, but I do get the impression that people sometimes build up unit testing to be this big thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. is this huge, complicated thing, and it's so different from regular programming, and you have to read all these books and learn all these frameworks and, and do it all these ways in order to use unit testing. And for me, it's really not like that. And I really wish that more people would see unit testing as something a little bit more lightweight, because I really think it is, where really what you're doing when you're unit testing is you're just creating an, an instance of one of your objects, and then you're calling some methods on it, and then you're asserting that the right thing happened. And that's really all there is to it when it comes to a unit test. In fact, if you wanted to, you could write your own unit testing framework, if you will, which would be a command line tool that imports your code that just creates that object that you want to test, runs the code you want to run, and then just puts an assert in there to check that the right output was given back. That could be a quote-unquote unit test. 
Of course, that's not typically how we write unit tests on you know, things like iOS or, or other Apple platforms. We use frameworks like XCTest, which facilitate all of those things. And they give us the kind of conveniences of writing test cases, which can encapsulate those tests. And then we have uh, functions like XCTAssertEqual's and XCTAssertTrueAndFalse and stuff, which lets us perform those assertions. But really, like the only thing you're doing in a unit test is creating instances of your objects, calling methods on them, and asserting the output. The tricky thing with that is mostly around how to structure your code for testability. So if you structure your code more as these functions that you give input to and they return some output, that would be inherently very easy to test because you will just, in your test, call that function with the with a specific input and assert that the right output came back. So the classic example, you know, super simple example would be an add function that takes two numbers and you give it three and seven, and you assert that 10 comes out of it, right? Of course, your code will probably be a little bit more complex than that, but I'm sure that if you look in your project right now, if you don't have any tests right now, I'm sure you can find some function in your code base that that is structured that way. It could be like a utility function that, you know, computes some kind of frame or something. It could be something simple. It doesn't really matter, but I'm sure you have some code somewhere, which is some kind of function that takes some input and returns some output. And that is a great candidate for a first unit test. And that can kind of show to you that unit testing is not so complicated as you might have thought that it is, where you can create a new unit testing target in Xcode. It would automatically give you the boilerplate for a test case. You can put that code in there that you want to test with an XCT assert that asserts that right output. And guess what? Now you have your first unit test. And again, I'm not saying don't read any books. I'm not saying don't read, you know, and and learn how to do more advanced kinds of testing. And you can't learn everything this way, but I feel like you can get started this way. And then maybe with some of the articles I've written and other people have written, you can then go to the next level and the next level. But I, I think that unit testing is really something you can get into piece by piece. You don't have to learn all of the techniques at once and write this super complex tests. You can start simple and kind of work your way towards more advanced tests. And I am going to sign below what you've said, and <laughs> that's it. <laughs> like uh, I completely agree, uh, and I do. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree that people tend to look at testing as like the super complicated thing, and I think to some extent it's our fault. And by our fault, I mean like the developer community in general, because I think people who are interested in testing the most and again this is generalizing so if you're not like this don't feel offended even if you are like i'm not it's not meant to be offensive some people who are really into testing they go really really far with the testing and they have a lot of theory and lots of techniques and frameworks that they use and Someone who's just getting into testing starts reading something like that and they immediately think that testing is this super complicated thing, right? Uh, and uh, it can be, but in essence, it's what John mentioned. It's instead of you running your code and seeing what happens, is you write code that runs your code and sees what happens, basically. Exactly. And... I definitely agree that sometimes, you know, you see these like test-driven development enthusiasts who have all these fancy terms for everything like acceptance testing and integration testing and, you know, subject under test. And all these terms make it sound more complex than it is, where most of those terms just refer to different ways and techniques and, and 
entities when you're testing, right? And you hear about mock data and, and, and mocking objects and capturing and stuff like that, right? But you don't have to use all of those things in the beginning. Like you can ease your way into those techniques and sometimes you might not even use them at all. So I also do agree that sometimes it might seem you know, more complicated just because of the people who are really enthusiastic about it, like the way they talk about it. And sometimes people also get like very strict around these things. And they're like, you can't write unit tests if you don't do X, Y, and Z. But I also really don't agree with that. Like, I think you can test your code however you want. And however works for you is great. Like, there's really not any wrong or right here. Like, if you can test your code and you can get started that way, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. I think that's amazing. So don't focus too much on doing testing like the quote-unquote right way. You can eventually learn to do that and you can make mistakes and learn from that and that's fine. So it you know, it doesn't have to be completely correct the first unit test you write or you know, adhere to all of the famous principles or something like that. It's all about just like getting started. Definitely. In a way it's similar to reactive programming <laughs> where the people who are really excited about reactive programming like for example using combine or rx swift they write these like super advanced uh, combined pipelines where you know their entire controller is all just one pipeline and it's so beautiful and just you know a few lines of code and you look at that as a beginner you you haven't used reactive programming before and you just feel like this is too complicated for me but then when you get started you can get started with these reactive programming frameworks pretty easily and you realize it's not so complicated to do the basics. And I feel like unit testing is exactly the same. If you see an expert doing like their expert unit testing techniques, it might seem more complicated than it actually is. Yep. Great. So that's our episode number 124, the episode number where every digit in the episode number is twice the number that preceded it. Right, Rambo? Oh, you can write a unit test for that. Yeah, exactly. I can unit test our episode numbers. That will be my next thing. <laughs> if you enjoyed our episode, please share it with a friend or on Twitter. That really helps us out. Or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That also really helps us out. If nothing else, it really motivates us. We are very happy when we see those types of things. So please do re- leave a review or share our show. That's really, really appreciated. You can also check out our sponsor for this episode. That also really helps. There is a link in the show notes for that. But regardless, thanks a lot for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. So say goodbye, Mr. Rambo. Goodbye.